Hello, and welcome to the Brightwell Darkroom Podcast. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick, Editor-at-Large. This month, we'll be hearing a conversation anchored by senior editor and frequent guest, Zosha Millman. Zosha's taking our August theme of underdogs as an opportunity to dig into one of the most anticipated post-pandemic theatrical releases of the year, David Lowry's The Green Knight. Chad and I have yet to see the film, and based on what we've been seeing in the Slack channel, we're so excited to hear our co-editors get into it. We hope you are too. What is The Green Knight if not a Christmas tree? Hello, and welcome to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Zosha Millman, and I'm your host today. I'm senior editor at Brightwall Darkroom, a TV writer about town, and one of the rotating hosts of this podcast. You've heard me before, although not a solo host. Uh, for this month's episode, we're talking about underdogs, how they win, how they lose, and the journeys they have along the way. Joining us today are Fran Hoffner. Hello. And Kelsey Ford. Hey. Yeah, I'm Fran Hoffner. I'm a staff writer at the magazine. This, I know we're talking about Green Knight today. I'll, I'll just briefly jump into it. Maybe the first movie I've seen, not only in theaters, but like in theaters on opening night in, I can't remember how long. So I'm really excited to talk about it today. Ooh, a big get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Kelsey Ford. I've been an editor at Brightwall for, I think, six years as of this September. Um, that's exciting. And I'm, yeah, stoked to talk about this. It was um, an exciting in-film movie to get to watch. And yeah, excited to be here. All right. Well, let's dive in. So as we said, we're talking today about The Green Knight, uh, which is based on an old Arthurian legend. Essentially, it follows Sir Garwin, uh, here played by Dev Patel. And he is present in King Arthur's court when this legendary figure, the Green Knight, shows up um, and basically issues a challenge that says any knight can come strike a blow on him and a year later he will pay it back in kind. Uh, so Sir Garwin volunteers himself and lobs off the Green Knight's head, feeling very confident. And the Green Knight rides away cackling and says, see you in one year. Um, and from there, we basically follow him through, We, I guess we jump over the next year, and then we follow him through his journey to go meet the Green Knight on Christmas Day a year later. Um, and along the way, he meets a host of characters and undergoes trials and tribulations, which I'm sure we'll cover within here. The director and writer is David Lowry, who's done things like a ghost story... Feel free to jump in here because I'm blanking on oh, what he's ain't done. Oh, Body Saints, the title, the title of a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Old Man and the Gun, Pete's Dragon. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and he's known for a lot of these kind of like ethereal. Uh, I don't know. I think of it so calling them ethereal art house pieces seems pretty pretty right. <laughs> yeah, ethereal like genre pieces too. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he jumps a lot between different genres, and that's certainly. It's certainly interesting to see him go from Pete's Dragon to Sir or the Green Knight, <laughs> Arthurian legend. Um, but yeah, why don't you guys start by telling me about what your first reactions were in the theater? Um, I, I can probably start because I think my reaction was just pure bliss. <laughs> um, like I, I was in the theater and I was just completely taken in by the movie. 
I like I think I was smiling the entire time, even through some of the more demented scenes to be smiling through, like uh, when he, you know, dives into the lake to or the pond or whatever to rescue the woman's head. I was I was just like grinning that whole time. Um, I think the, the way I felt about it was that I um, I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. It felt like sitting through, you know, like a series of short stories, you know, with these like moments that just felt like complete, like they could just be lifted out and in a lot of ways be their own short film. It felt like, um, and as someone who was obsessed with so much King Arthur stuff, um, when I was a kid, as I'm sure a lot of, a lot of us were, it just felt so great to be back in one of those stories where it's like, you can just take a left turn, you know, between pages and suddenly be within a different story that has a different logic to it and just be the, the feeling of having to catch up with that logic and um, yeah, just kind of let yourself be immersed in it. I, I, yeah, I was completely blown away and absolutely enjoyed it. Like, like Kelsey, I was also pretty entranced uh, with the film and very, very along for the ride for the most part. This was one, one of my most anticipated movies of the year. It was one of the movies I was both like disappointed, got pushed last year but so grateful that I didn't have to watch in my on my couch at home it was great to have like really the biggest screen I could muster finding uh that night and so I I was really kind of in awe of it as a spectacle um I maybe come down on the green night a little cooler than Kelsey but only because at times I felt there was a little bit of a push and pull where I felt um I don't know, at arm's length from it, but I don't necessarily see that as a negative aspect of the film. It only makes me more excited to rewatch. I'm very at peace with the fact that maybe there are parts of this that I don't even want to say I didn't understand because I feel like it's fairly straightforward, but that I just didn't know how to like emotionally latch onto. And there are some performances in the movie that may be better than I'm giving them credit for just because I... I don't know. I was so, so in it and living very much with like the present of the movie. Definitely. I mean, I'm hot off my second rewatch. Um, I went and saw it this afternoon ahead of this podcast recording. Uh, And I felt like when I walked out of it the first time, I had a similar reaction to you, Fran, where it was a lot of, okay, there was symbolism there that I didn't quite track. Basically, once he's on his journey... We have these series of vignettes where, you know, it's they're kind of preceded by a title card that marks it more clearly as a chapter. Um, and each one is just a little a little snippet of his journey. You know, it's about him, you know, meeting a meeting a robber on the road or rescuing a ghost lady's head out of a lake or, you know, residing, staying at the castle with a lord and lady who are giving off some weird vibes um and there's even one that's just called an interlude that has almost no talking in it at all and I think once you have that kind of structure you're tracking a lot of the kind of bigger story pieces and it's easier to kind of slot in the little interpretations you have, but it gets, some stuff gets lost in that. And so upon second watch, it felt a lot richer and I was able to pay more attention to a lot of the things that get carried through. Um, Most particularly, I think I was really struck by Dev Patel's performance as Garwin this time. Like I was just 
completely enchanted by him. It's an amazing performance, and the movie wouldn't be half of what it was with a less confident sort of lead performer. Yeah, he has such an interesting duality where I feel like in every scene you can see not only the scene as it's playing out, like when the Green Knight shows up um, and kind of issues his challenge, which I think does feel, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later, like a very clear... Uh, a very clear test of kind of honor more so than it does of bravery, but he's so eager to prove himself that he's just kind of chomping at the bit to impress King Arthur, um, who's there, although not ever named as King Arthur. He's just, you know, the king who's his uncle, Garwin's uncle. Um, And so when he gets in the ring, you know, as even as Green Knight is kind of kneeling and not not giving any fight at all he's just like really itchy really eager to fight um and you can just completely see in dev patel's performance how he's at once so scared and so blinded by this kind of foolhardiness that he thinks that this is the best way to kind of be be the big guy in there yeah he's always striving for the quote-unquote right decision even if it takes some needling or some cowardice or some pushing himself he's always almost there which i i found so refreshing and nice and in this kind of movie because i don't need a protagonist especially in a period piece and a fantasy piece to be like relatable but the push and pull between like our contemporary view of this poem of this myth of this story with what it originally was like we don't really have an honor system like that so what's like as close as we have to that and it's like mostly trying sometimes at your own benefit to do the right thing um which is so funny and i think so noble in its own way yeah it felt very it felt very illustrative of how um I mean, this will be fun, three ladies talking about this, but how masculinity feels like such a myth, you know, like he just keeps trying to live up to these knights who he's like literally seated at a table with already, like he's joshing with them. Um, and Guinevere even warns him not to take his his placement there idly. And yet he just can't seem to understand how they became who they are. And so when he sets off on his journey, he does have this very... Um, I don't think I guess it's not quite romanticized, but because he understands that there's a lot of pain there, he's not ready to meet. Um, but he does seem to think that because he's not ready to meet hit, he'll never be ready to meet any sort of pain or suffering or kind of leveling up really of his abilities. Yeah, that line that Guinevere has about um, how everyone at the table like is their own legend or has their own legend was such a perfect line. And I think like, absolutely. I mean, I think that that scene in general is so perfect because it like goes between so many different like modes and feelings so quickly, you know? Um, But yeah, that line was incredible. And also the sound design for the green Knight in that scene. And also like throughout the movie. So good. Yeah. I mean, so, so the green Knight basically the way he moves is like, he, the, the way he's embodied is like he's a tree that lives as a tree most of the time. And then sometimes he like lifts himself out of the ground and walks somewhere to do a thing. And so it sounds like this tree that has been still for, you know, a decade or however long. So the sound is very much just like creaking, you know, heavy. It sounds like he sounds just like 
old and like just his movements sound old and wise and threatening in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, anything else I'm missing? No, he's just so crackly. I could have listened to hours of it. Um, so crackly. Yeah. <laughs> like big, like n- natural knuckles ASMR. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah. Don't get me started. I'm I watch those chiropractor ASMR videos, so I was like, let's get this guy moving, let's get him <laughs> stretching, let's get him adjusted. I I would listen to the sounds of the Green Knight moving around to fall asleep if I could. Yeah, I so mean lovely. he's very. He does also. They use the kind of tree effect to make him look very old and wizened, especially compared to Dev Patel's like young baby face. Um, and what I've noticed is that almost all the kind of natural sounds in the film feel like they're dialed up. Like, you know, when the Green Knight enters, he's much louder than anything we've heard, especially, uh, King Arthur talks very quietly and kind of in respect. So does Garwin. Um, but you know, when, uh, when Garwin's on his journey and trees rustle or he like thrusts himself out of water, it's all super loud compared to the rest of the movie. And it just feels like this sort of like natural sound superseding anything that man has <laughs> has done here. I thought it was interesting that they went for this kind of supernatural but also hypernatural look for the Green Knight. We four of us went to go see it and we got into sort of myriad arguments after it uh in a in a fun way but one of which was that like you know original versions of this poem this is just like a guy with like a green thing on him and so the idea of landing a blow on a regular guy is not especially scary but the idea of landing a blow on a guy who's i don't know 10 or 11 feet tall who looks as though he's like made of a tree sort of elevates the premise of the game or of the challenge which is definitely like a later adjustment to this story in the first place. Definitely. I've heard that in the original poem, they also go out of their way to say that the Green Knight has a nice ass, which there are no oh. ass shots in the movie. That's what I've paid I attention mean, to. That That's how you make this movie horny. You give <laughs> the Green Knight an ass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree. No notes. No notes. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> What are you going to do next, I guess? Green Knight 2, show us the ass. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Green Knight 2, call him Magic Mike. I mean, did you think this was a horny movie? No. No. Yeah, no, I, I did not. And I've, I've, I've thought about it pretty consistently because Fran and I talked about it. It's, it's, yeah, it's not horny. It's just bodily, I feel like. And also the leader, like the, the leader, the, the lead guy is hot. So yeah. I there's think just people a lot are getting of hot confused. people in this movie, which there's yeah. usually hot people in movies, but maybe it's that they don't look, you know, sort of plasticky. They look dirty and these, the designs are very lived in. Yeah. And I would also argue that, I mean, this is probably not a blanket statement, but I don't think seeing come is horny. Like, I think that that's, yeah. Yeah. So later on when, uh, Garwin is at the at the Lord and Lady's mansion. He basically the lady is coming on to him and eventually jerks him off and he like we see a sh- a shot of semen. But yeah, it did not feel particularly a horny it scene. It wasn't um, hot. 
it, it, I mean, it's just very, it's very intense. Like, you know, despite opening with a scene of him and his lady friend in the brothel, um, it was not like, yeah, he does seem remarkably chaste, which is a lot closer to, again, the kind of original myth, which is about his purity of both kind of spirit and body. So Alicia Vikander plays his like lady friend who he is sleeping with in the beginning of the film and kind of ultimately is encouraging him to not uh not go to this quest you know she specifically says like why do you have to be great like why is goodness not enough um and she returns again in one of the later vignettes as the lady of the castle that he's residing at um totally different character just doubling up the actor um and i Frankly, both viewings don't quite know what to make of the kind of duality of her and the doubling up of her role. I I saw it from Garwin's point of view in that he just sees the lady of the house as her. Um, that maybe maybe they're two women who look similar similar enough to each other that he's able to just kind of copy paste one onto the other. I don't think in any way we're sort of supposed to take them as like literally the same, but I I took it as very from his point of view, his gaze that, mm-hmm. um, because he feels tempted by her because he's attracted to her, he sees her as this person who attracts and tempts him back home. Yeah, this is an instance I've been I've been reading um, interviews and uh, reviews and stuff over the weekend. Uh, to prepare for this. And I read an interview with the director where he talks about this specifically and he gave his answer. So I like have his answer, but I don't like it. (laughs) And I think that it's like, at least from my perspective, a good example of how these, these parts of the movie that are at arm's length, you know, and like from his perspective, he's probably like, well, obviously it's X for me. It's like so much more interesting that it exists than what the and also, like, what we think is happening than what he thinks. Um, and also, there are, like, a couple other things that he explained that um, uh, I'm, yeah, kind of annoyed at. But um, what what he said was that a lot of the quest was, um, a lot of it was built from his mother's perspective. Mm. And so she created the idea of, like, this lady to tempt him because using the face of his girlfriend back home. So it's it's essentially, Fran, what you're saying, but just more explicitly. Um, I prefer it, the subjective, from his perspective, experiencing this rather than imagining it as like some kind of um, puppet strings being pulled. It's interesting because I do feel like Lowry is really hammering the puppet string angle. Like as soon as Garwin strikes the Green Knight, it cuts to... I think first Arthur and Guinevere who have this face of just kind of like, ah, fuck, he didn't understand the assignment. Um, And then it does cut to his mother, who we have seen performing this, as far as we know, some sort of ritual, but she's clearly summoning the Green Knight. You know, she wrote out the letter and she holds it in the air and it bursts into flames. And then that's the exact thing we see the Green Knight deliver to King Arthur. Um, And I feel like it does return over and over to kind of her reaction shots, even when she's not talking or uh, really communicating a lot. We do see kind of his journey through her eyes. Um, And it's kind of that he's, you know, 
he's desperate for this story and she's created this to test him and is how it I guess or is how it comes off and it's yeah it just routinely returns to her in a way I think that I didn't quite clock the first time or didn't know what to do with the first time I guess I think that's an aspect of the movie I still don't really know what to do with and I haven't figured out sort of what it builds to what it means it's kind of similar to old in this sense but old's old's version (laughs) of this feels much more obvious um but we can't get it told you can do it (laughs) go for it fran (laughs) have we all seen old yeah yeah (laughs) is it okay to spoil old on the podcast yes can i decide yes (laughs) yeah okay you know if you haven't seen old take yourself to see a 7 p.m showing with four other people like i did uh go to the beach that makes you old It did have to be explained to me that it was the beach making them old. That I, <laughs> even though that's like been the joke for two weeks, I was like, "Oh, it is it actually the it, beach? It's um, the beach, yeah. It's literally the beach. It is literally the beach." Um, so you know, it turns out they're under observation of big pharma in old, but they they're always looking at a guy who's spying on them from up in the cliffs, and you know, longtime fans of M Night Shyamalan will know that he <laughs> gives himself a cameo in all of his movies, and it is M Night Shyamalan sort of recording and watching and playing this sort of puppet master voyeur it's so 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 deeply funny i mean old is great old is a great movie but in something like this where you have a similar sort of puppet master someone you keep returning to who presumably is seeing what's happening despite not literally being on this quest i don't exactly know what to make of it and it sort of spirals into like i don't know a free will conversation that I at least feel sort of intellectually out of depth uh, to get into with this movie. But <laughs> I don't know. I, and that's something that may reveal itself more in subsequent rewatches. I think how it struck me um, is kind of how the myth gets formed in a way, kind of like the authorship of it, because we have very explicitly her pulling the strings and kind of concocting this uh, this initial mission for him to go on. Um, and then we also have the title card popping up with Sir Garwin dot dot dot. And it pops up in like five different medieval fonts. Um, and each of those corresponds to a different chapter title. So we have, you know, an interlude or the journey out or um, I can't remember anymore at the top of my head. But uh, yeah, you know, like each of them comes back in this way that kind of feels like how these stories get translated and told and carried through the years until finally they make it to an A24 production house. Um, But I think it's so interesting how even just within the timeline of this movie, which is, you know, a tight year, um, we do already see Garwin's legend kind of building up and changing, Um, you know, somebody comes up to him at a bar and says like, Oh, you're the guy who picked up your own ax and you just like struck up the green Knight's head. And that's absolutely not how we saw it happen. But, you know, even just within 365 calendar days, you see it getting translated through this drunk guy at a bar who doesn't know how it happened or the puppet show that gets told to seemingly various villagers uh, throughout the year. Yeah. I I think the way that I, I think about it is less that she, his, his mother has created the story for him to, so he can become a knight. It's more that she's created this test to see if he should. 
And so a lot of the, um, and I think we see that pretty explicitly with the, um, with the green belt or, um, the green tie that, um, the second Alicia Vikander gives him, the lady gives him, um, and, you know, seeing what he does with the belt that gives him, you know, the power to not get struck down in any fight. Um, yeah, I, I see it more as a test rather than like an, uh, foregone conclusion. Definitely. I mean, the the green belt is interesting, too, because his mom gives it to him in the beginning. And when he gets robbed uh, midway through the film, they take pretty much everything uh, and except for his cloak, which is this like magnificent velvety marigold coat. Um, and over the course of the movie, he kind of gains back and loses various parts of his wardrobe you know it's very much not a kind of classic knight in shining armor it's much much older than that almost it feels much more you know it's just like chainmail and a shirt basically and then he's got this like belt that we know to be somewhat enchanted and basically his mom promises him as long as he doesn't take it off you know nothing will happen to him and he can come back with his head held high um and then when the lady gives him the belt back it's basically all he runs out of the castle with like you know he goes to confront the green knight in the final chapter with just his cloak his shirt and this belt and then the axe that the green knight left for him um and i just think the costuming is so specific and interesting in that way that it's like very much you know just the clothes on his back quite literally i mean we've touched on just like the look and feel of the film a lot something that i really loved about it that i haven't seen much discussion about is that the lord and lady's house feels somewhat forward in time to me um like i don't know my english history all that well but that's certainly not a medieval manner that they're in and there's bits of technology that I think feel, you know, slightly too anachronistic to a point. They seem to have like a proto camera, but the decor of the house in general feels much closer to the 16 or 1700s than it would say the 12 or 13 hundreds. And I love that they just have this very out of time, you know, weekend, three days together <laughs> that goes, you know, unremarked upon technologically speaking it it provides in a weird kind of magic um uh, a fun fact i found out about that castle um while i was doing my reading is that um it's a castle that this old couple owns and have been like renovating um so like it was pretty much just like this one floor that had that was safe and like they're like the top two floors were like open roofs and everything and there are just a bunch of cats running around I really liked imagining the cats running around between takes. <laughs> yeah, I think what I read was that she, the production designer, said that it was too big. Like, she was like, we actually tried to size it down because it was just, like, a really big castle <laughs> accidentally. And we didn't want it to be, to feel so kind of, like, voluminous. We wanted it to feel a little more intimate. Yeah, she built smaller windows in front of the big windows so that they'd look smaller. That's so crazy. <laughs> you can just own property like that over there, I guess. <laughs> it's a different country. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's affordable. I'm sure anyone can buy it. Just there on Zillow listings under castles. <laughs> um, what do you guys make of kind of the use of color and light? Kind of speaking of these like 
smaller windows that she built in. I feel like it's so specific about how each scene is lit and filtered through. I mean, obviously, we've got the color in the title, which kind of speaks to both uh, the greenness of Dev Patel's Garwin and also the specific knight himself who's known as the Green Knight. I guess I don't I haven't quite figured out what to make of the colors or like which because I mean it felt super deliberate super specific for each of the colors and like even like down to the costumes because I feel like each section kind of had its own color cast you know like there's that incredible um, I can't remember exactly which you know sequence it was but the like the yellow overcast over that one the one sequence which was incredible um the the only thing that i've really managed to come to is how we like the idea of um like each sequence having its own color like its own short story kind of thing um that's the most i've been able to figure Uh, yeah i don't know if i've thought too much about the sort of thematic significance of it beyond the speech that alicia vikander gives the lady about um I don't know, the enduring nature of green and I don't know how it'll take over everything, which then to me sort of put the film in kind of an environmental light. But I don't know that it's trying to be solely that as much as it is trying to be many different things, all of which I like. But in general, just because I feel like so much is desaturized right now, it's just great to see something colorful and interesting um and i take umbrage at the general complaint that it's you know meant to look like a desktop screensaver or has whatever has (laughs) like it's become like an a24 thing which is meant to be like a gift set on tumblr like i think this is very much a lowry thing and lowry is really great at like lining up a shot and just giving Mm -hmm. you a really memorable visual idea and concept i think this movie is so similar to ghost story which is a film that i love and think about a lot and that too like could almost it basically is without dialogue that movie could have no dialogue um and would just be as an as effective so i don't think this is a24 saying make your movie look like tumblr would like it Um, (laughs) because i think tumblr will like all sorts of things that looks like shit but you know has has something else going for it I think your note about the kind of speech that the lady gives where she's basically pushing Garwin to think about uh, why the Green Knight is green. And, you know, at first the Lord is kind of shrugging her off, basically saying like, "Eh, you know, that's the color of his blood. And she's like, right, but why? And Garwin says essentially that it's because he's not of this world. And she kind of points out that green as a color is very much of this world. And he says like, yeah, like mold. And then she goes into this whole thing about, uh, yes, it's mold. It's also plants, you know, like these are the things that take over once you're gone, basically, or they'll cover up your footsteps. They'll take your body, that sort of thing. And I think it's so fascinating that your read of that was that it was more climate driven because I felt like I've seen that kind of get dragged as the kind of, uh, I don't know. It's a little, it's really kind of beating you over the head with the theme, but I thought the theme being kind of (laughs) that I was being like illuminated in that moment was just that Garwin is so afraid of death and catastrophe that he's letting that kind of stand in the way of any sort of life and victory he might have, which I guess does go hand in hand, certainly with our modern sensibilities of climate change and whatnot. But yeah, I just think a lot about movies like, uh, 
like Lost City of Z, which sort of builds to a like the jungle comes for us all. There's nothing mm-hmm. you can really do about it. So I think yeah, I do think these ideas go hand in hand and like the inevitability of green. I forget the name of those trees that grow in like Tennessee and like Kentucky. I don't know if you guys know these that are just like extremely invasive. I don't know if it's a tree or like a bush, but they grow on top of trees. Um and people down there will just be like, yeah, those things will take over everything. We can't stop them. Like they're too far gone at this point. It's so cool and freaky. Yeah, it feels very like again, I totally understand the people who complain about this movie kind of like the dialogue it's not quite as lyrical as what i've read of the original poem um and it is at times a little bit like you know directly pointing to the theme um but it is also just i think it makes sense to me that the way we see garwin portrayed particularly in dev patel's performance is that he's someone who just truly in that moment and I guess not even in that moment, truly throughout the whole of the film does not understand at all what is being asked of him and what he's really being asked to consider as kind of a baby knight. And he's so caught up with, you know, people seeing him either as a knight or not a knight. You know, alternately, he gets kind of dejected when, you know, the robbers think he is a knight. So they see him as a mark and he's really upset because he doesn't feel like he's performing as such. Um, and when the lady... Uh, when when he comes too fast for the lady, I guess uh, he says she calls him not a knight, and he seems really sad by that as well. Um, and I think that having somebody trying so hard to sit him down and explain to him what they feel like he's missing feels like something that I believe he needs and still does not quite get in that moment. Um, and you know, it's not ultimately something he gets to until the final chapter when he's rematching so to speak, against the Green Knight. Um, and he really, I mean, like, he literally has to sit with what the Green Knight represents because he's waiting for the Green Knight to wake up on Christmas Day. Um, and then, you know, the Green Knight finally does come for him and we get this incredible interlude that's imagined. I don't know. What's your guys' take on the interlude, if anybody wants to speak to that so I can stop talking? I mean, I think it's totally imagined as this, like, alternate reality about uh cowards that lead um that people too afraid of death i don't know not only ruin their own lives but ruin those for i don't know the lives of those around them it's very bleak yeah. i thought it was a very political sort of ending i thought it was i loved it <laughs> um i i should say more than that but you no know, i i loved it i think it's totally bleak i think it's also completely correct i mean i think that like there's so much Lowry throughout the movie, but that particular sequence was like him like triple downing on what he does, which is, um, yeah, like providing the sequence and like letting you sink into it and then kind of kicking you back out into the light a little bit. Um, like just like the, you know, um, patterns that these people fall into, what it means to become a leader when you've, you know, maybe become a leader by running away from something and how that kind of leeches in and infects every other decision you make moving forward. Um, Yeah. I mean, I thought it was spectacular, especially because like the way with with those kinds of things where like um, the scene ends with like, and it was just a dream. Typically it's so annoying and so not satisfying, but I found it super satisfying to be bumped back out into that, um, into the chapel with the green Knight. 
um, and Sir Garwin and, you know, realizing like, oh, thank God that didn't happen. And, you know, what now? Yeah. Um, basically, as he's kind of lowering his head to for the Green Knight to return in kind, he keeps getting too skittish and kind of moving away and stealing himself. And then ultimately he says like, no, I can't do this. And he just completely runs away. Um, And when he goes back to his town, you know, he gets treated for his wounds and all the while he, he, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? He will not take off the green belt uh, his mother gave him. He just refuses, um, which he also refused to give, to take off as he was going into the green Knight's chapel Um, And we get this whole dream sequence where he goes to see Arthur and Arthur makes him a knight and then he becomes king, um, basically on the assumption that he's bested the Green Knight because, you know, he came back and he no longer has the Green Knight's axe. Um, And basically through the years, we see him make bad decisions, I guess. You know, he the woman he was sleeping with gets pregnant and he essentially very coldly leaves her money and takes the baby. Um, He marries, I guess what's supposed to be somebody of Royal lineage from a, an alternate country or some other country or I don't know, faction, I guess. Um, And she's the, I don't, is she played by the same woman as the St. Winifred or yeah. (laughs) Yeah, as the the ghost lady earlier. I guess I'm so used to seeing her with freckles that all the makeup they put over her, they just really took away the (laughs) identifying feature for a face blind person like me. Um, But yeah, and then, you know, ultimately his son dies in a battlefield. You know, we see that from the son's young age, like they're much more at war than uh, they were when Garwin was younger. And by the time his castle is under siege, there is actually, I mean, honestly, I agree with you, Kelsey, that I feel like the final act, the final chapter in particular um, with the Green Knight really felt like one of the most beautiful things I've seen all year. And it really just kind of sealed my affection for the movie, even if I still didn't quite know what to make of it. It was just so kind of bold and brazen in this, like, as the castle's under siege and he pulls the sash out and then his head falls off a la the green ribbon. <laughs> Best story ever. My friend texted me last night, it's just green ribbon for boys, which, you know, it's about time time that they got one. Finally, some representation. Um, But yeah, I mean, it feels very much like he was, like Garwin himself is ready to flirt with greatness, but not necessarily give himself over to it or even kind of face potential rejection from it. Um, And I think that's, again, just returning to kind of how Dev Patel is playing this, that you can totally believe that in Garwin's mind, he thinks that defeating the Green Knight is enough to make him king, kind of because it's been set up for him that maybe it is, but we're not really given any indication from anybody aside from his lady love that he's, you know like next in line or like this would really seal the deal for him and I think it does feel in a way idealized that he's got this huge ego that you know this is the only thing he ever has to do and then he can go back and reign and once he kind of has this dream moment it's really letting go of the ego and expectation um, that he's just going to get you know given Excalibur someday.
to me, the end of the film reads so much just like the death, death in general, inevitable, unavoidable. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe it's not the Green Knight who's going to kill him, but something will sort of come for him. And like, why not just sort of not even go out heroically, but go out honestly, um, which I find very hopeful and very beautiful and is obviously kind of different from the poem in which you know, Garwin just gets, like, the little nick on the neck and gets to go home. I sort of believe that in this version, he loses his head. Or, you know, and if not from this, in another way. Um, but that it ends sort of definitively with his death because that's what he what he fears most. Fears most and comes to accept. Uh, part of the Laurie uh, interview I read that I actually loved and thought was pretty cool and... I think speaks to your point um, is that he sees as like the fact that he probably has his head cut off as a happy ending, which I think is like exactly what you're saying, Fran, like this, like it's, it's kind of beautiful. It's like he figured shit out and then his head comes off. (laughs) So you actually do think that the movie, like, you know, the final shot we see in the film is the green Knight kind of laughingly saying, like, all right, off with your head. And then we see the Green Knight smile, and then it's the title card, the Green Knight. But do you actually think that we're supposed to think that he dies in that that chapel? I, I think that it's chill whatever we think. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair. I think that it's, <laughs> I think it should, I, I, I like that it's ambiguous. I think that, but I do think that um, whether or not he has his head cut off in the chapel, it's still like, a good ending like it's still like a happy ending he did the right thing regardless Mm -hmm. of how the green knight responds Mm -hmm. yeah and i think if he doesn't die in that chapel he he dies he is killed Mm -hmm. um not necessarily violently not necessarily by beheading but it just it just does come for him yeah i yeah i definitely agree that overall the film has a making peace with death being a constant inevitability you know and for us that's you could get hit by a bus today and for him it's you could get tested by a magical tree night someday (laughs) yeah exactly and it speaks to what fran was saying at the beginning we're like you know we're all gonna die anyways why not try Mm -hmm. you know like why not put our the best version of ourselves whatever that means out there definitely i mean it's interesting to me too that he uh just to bring it back to color theory because i love it um but he in his dream kind of has this like icy blue like fancy king tunic um which is very much in line with what he was wearing when he left like you know it's almost like he just he didn't learn anything on this lesson he just completely reneged back to who he was when he left which was kind of a a coward ready to prove himself um but you know throughout the movie he's put in these situations that are like deeper richer colors surrounding him you know he's got the cloak he's got the you know the blues around him get more saturated and also more tealy like it's almost like they're moving towards green kind of inevitably um and the whole dream sequence is just completely about like what if you just didn't like what if you just move that saturation bar all the way to the left and desaturated it um which feels very in line with both like his journey and the other people around him kind of watching this happen and trying to prevent him from 
kind of staying so so green and new um yeah and i mean additionally it's like the castle itself is so cold you know like every castle he's in it's very like the lighting is exactly what you would expect in a castle like it's all candle work it's all windows it's just very icy um as opposed to the forest as you were mentioning kelsey is just like completely yellow it's so like warm and almost over the top like it looks like <laughs> looks like some sort of like uh like wildfire season or something um and we finally hear from his little fox yeah the fox we haven't, we haven't touched on at all so i guess we should give some backstory there you want to take that friend oh he's got a he's got a little fox friend who follows him around guides him talks but only only towards the end and I think it was the New York Times review that, you know, made some comment that the fox was right out of a Disney thing, which I think was said tongue in cheek because the voice of the fox is also very spooky. I was really glad it wasn't a sort of, you know, Ryan Reynolds, Detective Pikachu. Kind of thing, but I think I expected something a little less eerie. And then it was like, oh, God, this thing is so haunted. Um, but that that fox is great. It's such a wonderful little guide. Um yeah. Are you pro fox talking, each of you? Oh yeah, yes. I wish the fox absolutely. More. Yeah, I, I was mean, I, I was happy with the fox talking that one time. It felt right. Yeah, I think it's another time when it's again the script is a little bit like just making it completely clear. But I think if you look at it as like the fox represents something deep inside him i guess i'd be interested to know what you think i wrote down in my notes like fox equals fear question mark um and just you know that kind of anxiety that he doesn't have to do any of this and that he could just go home and uh pretend or move on um but i think that you know the fox being the one to talk to him right as he's about to basically go to the green chapel and kind of have this moment of no return uh and the fox is the one saying like no you don't like you can come back you don't have to do this like nobody has to know basically um and yeah it does kind of have this like spooky whispery voice to it but also the fox did a lot of work to like guide him safely there right Mm -hmm. which i'm like i'm not sure how good or how i mean evil sounds reductive but um it, it felt t- to me the fox felt very much like you know a magical guide in that you find in a lot of these legends like um you know kind of disney-ish but which disney would have stolen from um these legends it just felt like a magical thing outside of himself maybe mm-hmm. but um that does that does seem to contradict you know the the fox speaking and you know telling him to go home i guess what made me what brought me to the fox being representative of that is that you know there's so many scenes where it he almost loses it you know it's like waiting outside the cave and he throws rocks at it it just keeps kind of poking its head around and he lets it come and lie next to him um or when he's leaving the lord's castle and the lord was like oh i was gonna it's gonna kill this and give it to you but i guess we'll just let it run free um and the fox continues to join him on his journey basically and it feels this like the sort of thing that goes hand in hand right with the fact that death is an inevitability that fear in and of itself doesn't have to be this negative kind of battery acid emotion that you have to push away it can be something that you incorporate into your life and like listen to and let guide you um and that 
you know, it's an important part. It keeps you it keeps you humble, but it keeps you alert, right? Like you learn from it. It keeps you alive throughout your journey, even if it's also tough to live with sometimes. I think to me, the fox is simply the fox. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I gave much thought to the fox um, in a way where I don't think I gave much thought to like Barry Keegan as like the the, the little pickpocket trickster. These those guys I took very literally, even though one of them is a talking mm. animal. In many ways, they're both talking animals. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know that I thought too hard about him. I just it's um. It was hard not to compare it to Fleabag, which is like the last thing that had a CGI fox. Uh, And I don't even know if I know what it represented there either. In the fox cinematic universe. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it just feels like one of many supernatural elements. Like I have no idea what to make of the the giants that pop up in the uninterlude chapter where he's just walking and he sees some giants who don't understand him at all, but return the fox's call. They just make like a... They just howl into the valley and walk away. Yeah, that was literally what I was about to bring up. Like these things that are, because I don't know. I mean, that wasn't in the original poem. I don't know where that, right? I don't, I don't know where that came from. And it, and it's one of those things where it's like, how much is this just this thing? And how much of it is like an externalization of something that the character is going through? You know, like how Mm -hmm. much is the fox the fox? How much are the giants the giants? Um, and I mean, I guess like the giants may have been a hallucination from the mushrooms, but I prefer to think of them as just the giants are giants. Mm -hmm. That's true. At one point he does eat mushrooms and then kind of like trips out on his hand. So who's to say? Yeah. With the giants, I was like, you know, who's to say those guys weren't there either. I want them to have existed in our history. Yeah. Um, you know, we've lost we've lost so much magic. We could have lost giants. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. I mean, it did feel like another way that like myth is getting translated even in that very moment, right? Like did he see it? Did he not? Like even if he did, could he tell that and anybody would believe him? Or, you know, certainly if he walked into a bar now, would anybody be like, "Ah, yes. Classic English giants." <laughs> yeah. They look like the Prometheus guys. Am I crazy? Yes, totally. <laughs> I was like, okay, extended universe. Um, Ridley Scott is out of control for this one. Yeah, I guess they had to look like that so they didn't look too silly. Like the sort of English storytelling giants, which are, you know, like BFG levels. But mm-hmm. yeah, I immediately thought of Prometheus. Yeah, they're so gray and just kind of ashy and ashen that it just feels like... Yeah, like it's not even it doesn't even feel like statues come to life. Like it does just feel mm-hmm. <laughs> like like just straight Prometheus. I had not made that connection before. Yeah. And they're migrating and they're doing their own thing. You know, I think that for me, um, it, it's a perfect example of what I loved about so much of the movie. Just like how these different types of stories can just live alongside each other. You know, like you can move from a ghost story to a migrating giant story to the next thing just you know scene to scene and how um yeah and how just like magical literally that felt did you feel like it captured uh particularly for you kelsey who comes from like you know an interest in this do you feel like it captured kind of the magic and mythos of an arthurian legend in kind of a modern way like you know does it feel old-timey to you does it feel of our times how did you feel about that 
I mean, I think it absolutely did, but I come from my background is like reading *Miss of Avalon*, so mm-hmm. I'm already like you know two or like two or three steps removed from like the original, very like the original stories. Um, so I think it did in the way that it made me feel the way that reading *Miss of Avalon* felt when I was a kid. But I don't know if that's, you know, that's not like a purist standpoint. <laughs> Um, I don't think there's anything else I was hoping to cover unless you guys have anything that came up that you want to make sure we get to. I mean, I don't think we need to talk about it being a Christmas movie, but it's a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas movie. Oh, I, I guess... don't think it's a Christmas movie. I think it's a movie at Christmas. It's like it's Shane Black's movie. universe where it's like, it's <laughs> Those not are necessarily Christmas, Christmas movies. No, they're not. Cause it's not dealing with Christmas. Yes, okay. Here's, here's also the thing. Okay. <laughs> Here, here is where I will go for it being a Christmas movie, which I do actually think is an interesting thing we haven't touched on, which is that it's set at exactly the kind of crux of time where Christmas was coming about because like Christianity was stealing from paganism. And so it does have a lot of uh, kind of balancing of these two belief systems and I think that that is certainly an interesting undercurrent because, you know, Garwin is specifically asked, like, do you believe in magic? And he's like, oh, absolutely. But he also goes to, like, you know, Christmas dinner. Like, you know, he gets before he goes kind of the blessings from both his mom's, um, I think it's implied, pagan circle as they're kind of sewing the belt for him and kind of saying, like, uh, protective chants over it um, and then also the king and queen give him like the virgin mary's blessing and even on his his little shield the outside has this like pentagram symbol that's repeated a lot throughout uh sir Ar- king arthur's court and then on the inside there's just this like beautiful painting of the virgin mary um that ultimately gets split in two but i don't necessarily know if that's a commentary on christmas itself so much as like the long-term hundreds-year tradition of moving Christmas around. <laughs> I, I see your intellectual argument, and I raise you, what is the Green Knight if not a Christmas tree? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with that, I guess we can get into our last call. So every episode, we end with a wrap-up segment where we ask our guests, in this case, Fran and Kelsey, for the last things that you guys watched, and then a quick staff recommendation of something that you might put out there for other people to consume. Kelsey, you go first. The last movie I watched was Freaky, courtesy of HBO Max. Right after doing a binge watch of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You, uh, which is what I would recommend. Watch Happy Death Day. It's a great movie. Do you have a preference on Happy Death Day 1 versus Happy Death Day 2? I like 2. Yeah. Okay. Fran, how about you? The last movie I watched was Dario Argento's Deep Red, um, which was my first Argento. There's sort of been a concerted effort by people who care about me in my life to get me to become brave when it comes to horror movies. So I'm being eased into... (laughs) Uh, the genre right now and which I you know I had a lot of fun watching Deep Red it looks awesome it's I it's really kind of a fun treat um and then I'll put forward um a rec for I um I don't know how many listeners are on the sort of Paramount Plus beat but I've been re-watching Detroiters on there which was a show I loved 
uh, when it was on and was unfairly canceled. And I think if you're finding yourself just constantly running out of, I think you should leave sketches. It's obviously <laughs> a different thing, but it, it gives you a sort of similar fix with Tim Robinson and Sam Richardson. Well, those are both great pairings for the Green Knight. So I urge everybody to go out and watch them. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, it was so great to have you guys on as guests. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, and why don't you guys tell us where we can find you online, respectively? All of my usernames are my name, so at, at Fran Hoffner. All of, all of my usernames are K-E-L-S Fjord, F-J-O-R-D, which is a juvenile reduction of my actual name. <laughs> but one I'm so stuck memorable. with. <laughs> uh, and I'm Zosha. Again, you can find me at, at Zosham on Twitter, but also just Google my name. I'm everywhere via Zosha. <laughs> you can find us all in writing at brightwelldarkroom.com. Somehow writing it out is so much more confusing than just saying it. Um, but there you'll also find a whole underdogs issue being released throughout the month of August where there's essays on I, Claudius and School of Rock and many more classic underdog films. Uh, and this podcast is edited and produced by the great Victoria Alejandro. Woo woo! And with that, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> uh, you can find us also all in Brightwell, <laughs> BrightwellDarkroom.com, where there's also a whole underdogs issue. God damn it, Victoria. <laughs> Keep making me take these again.